Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it, you love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane. Today, we have a wonderful episode for you. It is episode 192, and Kim Kuhn is our guest. You know her from her time on NBC Sports. You've seen her for the first three races of their Cup Series broadcast and Xfinity, for that matter. You also have heard her on the Motor Racing Network. You may have heard and seen her on NASCAR's digital and social media platforms. You also may have remembered her as her time as Miss Sprint Cup in the 2010s and so much more. I know I say this about a lot of my guests on the show. It may, might just show that NASCAR people are just so diverse and so cool, but she may be one of, if not the most interesting women in all of motorsports, especially motorsports media. Love Kim. She's so good at what she does. She's an even better person. So cannot wait for you guys to hear that chat. I've been wanting to have her on for honestly a long time. And we finally were able to sit down, hammer out some schedules and get to a great conversation. Also got a quick recap of Atlanta Motor Speedway. We're going to preview New Hampshire Motor Speedway this weekend. But before we do any of that, got to throw it over to Papa Siegel with a way back segment for the number 92. Now, full disclosure, this was recorded actually before the race at Atlanta after Chicago. There was a lot of moving, a lot of shaking going on this week in terms of my schedules, where I was geographically, canceled flights, delayed flights, metros, Ubers, Chicago, DC, cancellations. It was a lot. I'll spare you the details by essentially saying this. I didn't plan the best and time got away from me, hence I did not have an episode for you guys last week. I I am apologizing for that now. I'm sorry. I hope your life went on, but if you're here, clearly you didn't think it was that big of a deal. So the reason for no episode last week was, long story short, basically my fault, coupled with some cancellations of flights and nothing really worked out in my favor logistically as, as it comes to that. Anyways, that's my long way of saying that Papa Siegel's Wayback segment was recorded last week but it is still wonderful and wild, as always. What have you got for us this week, Papa? Thank you, Duve, and welcome, everybody, to episode 192. Last time around, we looked back on Hall of Famer Herb Thomas, pilot of the legendary, fabulous Hudson Hornet. Kachiga? Yes, Mooms, for reals. Kachiga! So, as you may have noticed... Coming up with the Wayback Machine honoree as we run through the numbers a second time hasn't always been easy. I thought that was going to be the case with number 92, but last weekend's events mandate the subject of today's segment, even if it means I have to get a little creative with the numerology. Before last weekend, it had been more than 60 years since someone won their first NASCAR race in their first attempt. That distinction belonged to Johnny Rutherford, who won his Daytona qualifying race in 1963 when the duels were points-paying races. I bet Lone Star JR thought he was taking that record with him. Not so fast, mate. 
The new holder of that honor is Shane Van Gisbergen. I know, Duve. You're throwing the penalty flag on me right now and asking how SVG fits into number 92. Sure, it would have been more convenient for him to win before last week's segment since he was driving Trackhouse's 91 car, not the 92. No such luck. He's known for driving the 97 car down under, so another close but no cigar there. Okay, how about this? You start with 85, which was the car number we most recently used to discuss Lone Star JR winning in his first timeout. Next, the last wonder from down under to win a NASCAR race was Marcos Ambrose. He raced in the Cup Series for seven years, from 2007 through 2014. So, you take 85 and add 7, and you get 92. That works, right? You're not convinced? Okay, how about this? It's my podcast segment, and I'm using it this week to talk about the guy who got me more excited to watch a NASCAR race this past weekend than I can remember in a really long time. Get over it. Van Gisbergen hails from New Zealand and is a three-time V8 Supercars Championship winner. He started almost 500 races in that series dating back to 2007 and has amassed an impressive 80 victories. In addition to the Supercars Championships, he won the Bathurst 1000 twice. He's also been a regular participant in the 24-hour races at Daytona, Spa, and Le Mans. So yeah, this dude is big-time legit. But come on, do we fully realize what he just accomplished at Chicago? Think about all the other NASCAR road course ringers you've seen or heard of who have tried and failed to win at the cup level. Ron Fellows who won an Xfinity in the trucks, but not in cup. Boris said, Andy Lally, who Davies spoke to last week and finished 26th at Chicago. Kimi Raikkonen, who we discussed last week and who knew what he was doing, but didn't win. Mad Max Pappas. Need I go on? I don't think so. Also consider that SVG flew more than halfway around the world to hop into a car he'd never raced. A car, by the way, where the wheel was on the wrong side for him. What does he do? He bests the field, both in the wet and the dry. I thought he was toast after he restarted 18th late in the race. No worries, mate. He methodically and cleanly, I might add, drove around his competition, not through them, like a certain watermelon boy trackhouse teammate would have. And when it was all said and done, the excited yet humble Van Gisbergen's last words to his crew chief were to ask, well, what do I do now? Darian Grubb's response, celebrate on the front stretch. Turns out Van Gisbergen also knows how to make the donuts. I love this guy. Davey was there to witness it all on his birthday from the lows of the monsoon rains to the triumph of the event itself, and Shane Van Gisbergen giving us all something to cheer about and remember for a long time. 
Like I said, I haven't been that excited while watching a race in a long, long time. Kudos to NASCAR for having the guts to put the event on in the face of too many naysayers. Kudos to the track crews and the Elgins for getting the track raceable after the big rains. Big ups to the fans in Chicago for coming out. And congrats to NASCAR and Shane Van Gisbergen, who were both big-time winners last weekend. Kachaga! That's all for this week. Back to you, Doof. Thank you, Dad, and thank you, Mom, for that uh, boisterous Kachiga, uh, as always. Appreciate that. A little bit long for me this week, Dad, but I'll let you have it, especially considering that this spans, I guess, a couple weeks, even though you didn't plan it that way. But nonetheless, we appreciate you, and thank you, Mom, as well, for, again, the wonderful Kachigas. Um, all right, let's start off this episode, as we always do, with a good old-fashioned... <laughs> And throw straight over to my interview with Kim Kuhn of NBC Sports, MRN Radio, NASCAR Digital, and of course, Jude's Mama. Of course, that is the biggest title that she should ever have in her professional and personal career. She's so interesting. She's so good at what she does. We got into a lot of different chapters in Kim Kuhn's life, from attending college at The U, going to grad school at Bama, being a cheerleader in the NFL, being on The Bachelor, her professional work as it pertains to not just NBC, not just MRN, not just NASCAR, but different things in and outside of the sport as well. And of course, her time as Miss Sprint Cup got into some glass case of emotion talk, being a proud doggy mama to Jude, the cutest thing that I ever did see. And also, is there anything else that she wants to accomplish in and out of motorsports professionally in her career? Her answer is a bit unsurprising if you know Kim like I do, but you'll have to wait and hear for yourself. Love this conversation, and I hope you will too. Here is the chat with the aforementioned and incomparable Kim Kuhn. Pleasure to welcome on to the show today one of the most interesting women in the world of motorsports, and I mean that wholeheartedly. She is so busy, I do not know how she keeps her schedule and her life straight, but good news for us and me personally, I'm going to figure out that answer today. It is Kim Kuhn of NBC Sports, MRN Radio, NASCAR Digital, and everything in between. How the heck are you, my friend? I hope you're getting some sleep. Uh, I'm a little tired uh, now that we're in the grind of the summer stretch, but hanging in there for sure. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, pleasure to have you on. So three races into the year on the NBC side of things. The races themselves have been awesome. Barn burners, I would say. Uh, besides the fact that you've been wet for all three of them, how have they been for you? <laughs> They've been good. Uh, again, aside from the unusual nature of them, um, you know, having the Chicago street course, that was totally new to everybody. And then this weekend at Atlanta with what we dealt with, it's been, I'm ready for like some regularity. Some yeah. just let's get through the weekend without any sort of delays. But that being said, it has been so much fun. There's been so much energy kind of injected into this uh, stretch of the season. So I'm excited. Three races down and we still got 17 to go. Uh, but who's counting, right? Right. <laughs> uh, good news for you, though. It never really rains at New Hampshire and Pocono. That place is always dry. Oh, yeah. We'll see. <laughs> uh, we do have wet weather tires, though, this weekend yeah, we do. for New Hampshire. So I feel like that's just like asking Mother Nature to just bring the rains now that we have these wet weather tires the magic mile for a reason we're gonna have some magic and some dry conditions i'm willing it 
into existence. I'm just choosing not to look at the forecast. Okay. Um, <laughs> speaking of rain, I know that uh, you grew up down in Miami in the area, Orlando specifically. Um, you grew up in that area. Were you exposed to racing at all when you were growing up down south in Florida, or did that kind of come later in life for you? Um, it pretty much came later for the most part. Like, I grew up in central Florida, so I was aware of Daytona. Um, the funny thing is, if you're from central Florida, like during spring break and any opportunity you have to go to the beach, you're not going to Daytona. You're going to New Samarna for whatever reason. Um, that was just kind of where we went. Um, but my grandparents did have a condo in Daytona. So I was familiar with the track there. And then in undergrad at Miami, got a little bit more exposure to it as well. But for the most part, I grew up watching and playing stick and ball sport. So I don't know that racing was really on my radar until later in life. So you mentioned Miami right there. Uh, I have some family members past and present that attended the U. If I wasn't holding this microphone with my right hand, I'd give you one. Um, so I know that uh, when you went to the U, you majored in broadcasting. Was that something that you figured out once you got there that you wanted to do? Or did you know that kind of going in? No, I definitely knew that coming in. I knew that in high school, you know, I wanted to be the next Aaron Andrews or Melissa Stark. That was kind of the goal. And I looked at a couple of schools that had really strong communication programs. Actually, my first choice was USC all the way in California. Okay. I got in. I still actually in my parents, my bedroom in my parents' house, back in the closet, I have the acceptance package. I'm dating myself because they used to send the big packets uh, when I was in school when you got in. Um, ultimately though, you know, California was too far. Um, and Miami had a really good communication program too. Their comm school is kind of a sister to Annenberg at USC and Miami offered me a scholarship. So, uh, that was helpful. So I knew that I wanted to go into broadcasting in high school and that kind of is what directed, um, the colleges I applied to and then ultimately going to Miami. Um, so yeah. And I think while you were at the U, you were a member of the Miami dance team, which, you know, kind of led you after school to, to be a cheerleader for the Panthers, which we'll get to. But how did that come about? Did you do dance in high school or before that? Did, was that something organic that kind of came up while you were in school? Yeah, kind of. So in middle and high school, I did a bunch of stuff. I, I ran track and field. I played softball. I cheered for like seventh and eighth grade but my friends and i the, the part of the cheer squad that we liked the most was the dancing part so we kind of started our own dance team at our school uh so That's i cool. got exposure to that i mean i danced when i was really really little like ballet but if you ask my mom i actually hated it at least the ballet style dance um <laughs> so it was funny that it it came full circle and i was back in it and so i when i got to miami it was like i don't know it was just uh, like a whim i was like I feel like I could do this. Like, I only know, you know, what it was like in high school. I don't know what it's like at the collegiate level. And so I just decided when I saw that the tryouts were coming up that I was going to do it. Like, what's the worst that can happen? I don't make it kind of thing. Um, yeah. And ended up making it. And that, so that kind of kept me on a very strict schedule um, in college between having to maintain a certain GPA for the scholarship I had. And then we, cheer danced at every home football game any um away football game that was in state so florida state florida um and then we, we had to go to every men and women's home basketball games uh perform Man. at those so it was a hefty schedule but like i said 
you're down in Miami, so it was nice to have a little bit of structure and a little bit of direction. Um, yeah. And, yeah. So I, I ended up actually graduating early because I was on the straight and narrow. <laughs> Look at you go. That's that's the least surprising thing today that I'll probably learn. Um, <laughs> but I will say, probably prepared you well for for your professional life now, balancing all these different responsibilities and roles. You started in college and you haven't really stopped, I guess. Yeah, I I think it was a great experience just from like being thrust into something, you know, it was interesting. I'll get into specifics. So like the Miami dance program, we were called the sensations. Um, they have tryouts in the like spring and they have tryouts in the fall. Well, yeah, if you're an in incoming freshman and you know that that's available to like travel and go try out, you know, in the spring session, right before summer starts, you can do that. And then you get to go to like summer camp and learn all the routines and like learn everything. I didn't know that I, I was only exposed once I got there as a freshman. So I saw the fall tryouts, um, and tried out, ended up making it. Well, you play a very hard and quick game of catch up because you have the majority of the squad that's either been on the squad for years or they came and they tried out in the spring and they got to spend the, the entire summer learning all of the right. routines. Um, so for me and like, I think there were three of us that tried out in the fall. Um, and it, we just had to like, basically have this like cram session of what was probably two weeks before the first home kickoff football game. Um, and this is back when Miami was still decent at football. So like a big deal. Uh, and I remember like calling my mom, like almost in tears, like, I don't know that I can do this and learn all this stuff, but ended up powering through. So I, that's a good actually analogy, like, because when I started in the motorsports world, I was kind of like thrust into it and had to learn really fast. Uh, you just have to adapt. Like you have to be able to, to adapt and evolve and learn quickly. And so it was definitely a good learning experience. Yeah, no doubt about it. So from one football powerhouse, maybe back then to a current football powerhouse, Roll Tide, went to Bama, yeah. uh, studied yeah. advertising, PR and marketing. What was the rationale and the reasoning for going back to school there and, and studying those specific disciplines at that point? Yeah, when I when I was in my senior semester of college, I had gone ahead and I applied to grad schools um, because I didn't know, like at that time I was like, you know, getting a, a secondary degree was a very big thing. It, it almost felt like it was necessary um, so I knew that that was something that was, I was interested in doing. I, I didn't know what the employment situation was going to be out of undergrad. So I just went ahead and I applied, um, to a bunch of schools. I applied to Alabama, Tennessee, Carolina, Georgia. I think that may have been it. Um, but I had a professor in the comm school when I was like getting advice from him, like what he would do. And he said, you know, unless you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer getting a, postgraduate degree in the same thing, exact same thing you did undergrad. Um, it doesn't give you much like variety or diversity. Hmm. Um, so he recommended I actually go in a different communication silo with the, the grad programs. And then on top of that, I had a internship my senior year of college of undergrad, uh, where I was like doing public relations work for like a big agency that repped like big movie houses. So like Sony and DreamWorks and a bunch of different movie stuff. And I really enjoyed it. So I thought like, I didn't know for sure that I was gonna do grad school or not, but I went ahead and applied. And that was kind of the direction I applied in. Then got 
home to Orlando after graduation, actually worked for Fox Sports Network Florida for a little bit for like eight months. During that time, found it, found out that I got into grad school and it was like, what do I do? And I had a really great boss. Uh, his name was Tim over at Fox Sports Florida that kind of guided me. He said, there's no wrong choice, but um, ultimately helped me make the decision to go to grad school. So like you mentioned, I think while you were in grad school, you worked on some really big major motion <laughs> pictures. Oh, hello. Is that Jude? That's my dog. Yeah. That's Hi, my Jude. Dog. Hey, Say Jude. hello. You probably get that a lot. Hey, Jude. Yeah. Um, hey anyway, Jude. Jude's on my outline, by the way. I'm, save, I'm saving Jude for the oh, end. Yeah. Just don't worry. It's coming. All right. Good. Good to see you, Jude. Good to hear you. Um, so anyways, you, you said that you worked on some really cool stuff in grad school. Major motion pictures, I think, was a big part of it. And you essentially helped promote them with the advertising, PR, and marketing aspects. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. That was more... Um with the internship that I okay, did at my okay. before I got to Alabama. But yeah. So like, Oh my gosh, so many, like it was when the Harry Potter, some of the Harry Potter franchises were coming out yeah, and like we would get to like, we were in Miami. So it's kind of unfortunate. Cause now Miami is, I mean, back then Miami was still like a major metropolitan, but now I feel like it's even more focused in like, they do really big things down there. So I would love to have like that experience in Miami now, but even when I was there, like they would get movies first or like get, you know, in the theaters or they would do previews before it would ever be released like nationwide. So we would get to like invite different people in the community to come like basically to the movie screenings. We would get tons of like promo stuff that we would get to like send out um, just all sorts of like chotch to like promote the movie. Um, yeah. I will say it was like a lot of grunt work. It was an internship, uh, but I still really enjoyed it. When did uh, Charlotte come into the picture for you? Was that when you cheered for the Panthers or was it before that? Uh, Charlotte, I had had a couple of friends that lived in Charlotte. Actually, a couple of friends that went to Davidson too. So I was like exposed to Charlotte, um, kind of starting in undergrad. And then after I graduated from Alabama and got back to Central Florida, it was like, I knew I didn't want to be in Central Florida and I had like gave myself, I think like three months to decide where it was going to be that I was going to move. And it was between Charlotte, Atlanta, Chicago. I had a ton of friends that were in all three of the, well, actually I had more friends in Atlanta and Chicago, a couple friends in Charlotte. Um, but ultimately Chicago was too cold. Uh, Atlanta, it, I don't know. It just didn't fit me. And Charlotte was like the perfect, like, middle ground like yeah. goldilocks place like it was still like growing i mean it still is growing but you know it was reasonable enough to move there without having a job and feel okay about like my financial situation and like right. the work prospects that were there um so charlotte went out out of the three so was that uh when you cheered for the panthers was that after you moved to charlotte was that before what what's the give me the timeline here yeah, so the Panthers actually, that's like a that was like a glorified hobby. So I was actually working when I first got to Charlotte um, for an architecture and interiors firm uh, doing all their communications. So like wow. the graphic design, like all their PR, their RFPs, just anything that fell under the communication realm, I was kind of in charge of. Um, and that was my full time, like 40 plus hour a week job. It was actually probably closer to like 50 um, and again, on a whim, uh, 
found out about the Top Cats, which is the cheer team for the Panthers. I just was like, hey, like in my head, I need to meet a lot of people. I need to get plugged into the community. It was never like, oh, I want to try out for this because like, I want to be like in front of a crowd and like dancing out. Like that's sure that's part of it. But like I moved to Charlotte January 1st, 2008. Um, the trials were in March. I just felt like it was a really great way if I, even if I didn't even make it to go to the tryouts. Cause there were hundreds of girls that um, tried out just to like meet people and kind of figure out this new city. And so again, it was just like at Miami, it was kind of on a whim. Um, I don't know that I, I ever have considered myself like the most talented dancer, but I definitely am an entertainer and kind of that's where I shine. Um, and again, called my mom on the way to the stadium. I was like, I think I'm, I, I, I think I'm going to try out. And she was like, go for it. Uh, tried out, ended up making it. It was like a very long, like month and a half, two month process where like there were auditions and then you stayed with the, like, you had, there was like a tryout team where it got down to like, I don't know, maybe like 40 girls and you, you practice with the team for like a month and then a final like tryout audition where they narrowed it down to who would make the team and made the team. And then again, so that's, that's just like a hot, yes, you got paid, but it was like minimum sure. wage, like a handful of hours a week. So I would go to my regular day job, you know, nine to five, it was actually more like eight to five. And then I would go essentially on Monday and Wednesday straight to the stadium. We had practices from like seven to 10, but if you didn't practice before practice, you were behind. So like, I, looking back, don't know how I had the energy for it, uh, for like a 40 plus hour regular job and then practices and then practice on Saturday games on Sunday. It was chaos, but again, it was exactly what I wanted it to be, which was, I got very plugged into Charlotte, met a lot of people, got to do like a lot of community service too. Um, so it was, it was a really good introduction into the city. Like Denny Hamlin, you're thriving on chaos. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> it seems like it. I mean, back then, so your schedule now is hectic as, as hell, right? Yeah. Back then, it seems like it was too. And, and you're probably, what, in your 20s, just grinding, yeah. just yeah. going after it. You didn't really know any better at that point. I guess looking back, you're probably like, oh, I guess I see why I'm doing all the stuff I'm doing now. This is all I've yeah. ever done. Yeah, it's all i ever done. And the funny thing is, people ask about the travel. My, I like My dad was a pilot growing up, so mm -hmm. like this the this schedule of like okay you're away from home for a handful of days and then you're home you know for a handful of days and and just this like grind of that seems very normal to me because yeah. i watched my father do it for you know my entire childhood adolescence part of my adulthood so it 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 seemed i don't know that i could ever do a 9 to 5 monday through friday year after year after year because yeah. that was not my exposure ever and your mom was a flight attendant as well i think right so she, she was, was when I, she was she was before i was born that's how um, oh, okay. my parents met yeah and then and then after they got married she stopped being a flight attendant and has done a, a bunch of different stuff now she owns a, a little shop but yeah that's how they met my mom was a flight attendant my dad was a pilot 
Got it. All right. Well, we we're like almost 20 minutes in and we've barely touched NASCAR. <laughs> so we might as well dip into there. Um, you mentioned when you did some work for Fox Sports Florida or South Florida, I forget the name of the official network, but mm-hmm. I think in 05 was back when you kind of had your first exposure to NASCAR. I think it was a race at Daytona. Can you take me back there to that day and that time and when you kind of were first exposed to the sport on a personal level in person? Yeah, the first race I went to as like an adult that was very aware of like, oh, this is, you know, a sport and this is what's happening and getting an understanding was, yeah, like 05 uh, Daytona summer race. Um, And it was awesome. It was so cool, just the entire experience. And then on top of that, that same year, people from homestead miami speedway came and spoke to one of my sports management classes at miami too so got a little exposure there and then uh when i was at fox sports network florida uh one of my jobs was like to trim down these old classic nascar races from like four and five hours to like 90 minutes palatable uh, i've been there (laughs) broadcast windows so a little more exposure there so it just kind of felt like I just kept getting this like tap on the shoulder, like, Mm -hmm. Hey, we're here. Like, come see it. Like it's us. We're here. Uh, (laughs) it was like just a a handful of incidences like that, where it was like just a little tap on the shoulder, like, Hi, we're NASCAR. Like, come come see see us. us. Yeah. When did, um, when did Miss Sprint Cup come into the picture then? And I know we're probably jumping around a lot, a lot of time last year, but when did that start? Uh, that was, so I lived in Charlotte for, almost two years, right around two years, um, was tired of doing a desk job. Like, again, not my nature, not what I was exposed to. Uh, so was kind of getting antsy. Um, I liked being in the sports world, like being exposed on the, on the Panther side. And then just having been in the athletic department at Miami, um, really just gravitated towards like the energy of the sports world. Um, Charlotte obviously is like the epicenter of racing and it, it was very random. I was on Facebook and, um, ad popped up like in the side column, like apply for Miss Sprint Cup. I had no idea, you know, what the job was, did a little research. And then I was like, oh, this is actually like a legitimate job. I feel like I could be very good at this and it would give me, exposure to a lot of different types of you know the communication world and it would get me unchained from a desk uh so again everything it, it everything i these rant like when i try out for the dance team at miami trying out for top cats applying to miss Frank cup they were all very much like i don't know if it's i've said on a whim but just like these like bursts of like i'm just gonna do this like I didn't really overthink it. I just was like, thrust myself into, all right, I'm going to do this. Um, so I applied to Miss Sprint Cup. It was one of, if not the hardest job interview I've ever done. Uh, ended up getting that. And that was kind of my first actual working in NASCAR experience. couple things there that I have questions on. You mentioned a couple times the, the spontaneity that you seem to exhibit in a couple different chapters of your life. Where does that come from? I don't know. I think I'm a, if people believe in astrology, I'm a Sagittarius. So I don't know if you can liken it to that. I will say I'm a, I'm a middle child. I'm the middle of three girls okay. and I'm very much to a T a middle child. So I think it's just like the, you know, dream seeker kind of element that middle children sure. deal with and the, the independence. I'm like the black sheep 
my entire family is still in central Florida. Like I'm the one that flew the coop. So I think it's just <laughs> spontaneity is a product of the dream seeking and the independence. Gotcha. Okay. Um, you said it was the hardest job interview you've ever had. Why was that the case? And I mean, going into it, did you have a realistic expectation of, oh yeah, you know, I, I think I'd be a good fit for this. I think I could do this. And when you got the job, were you surprised? I was surprised that I got the job um, only because it was one spot for a lot of people applying um, a very visible job. So I feel like relative to other not that a lot of people don't apply for other jobs, but it just seemed like the odds, even though I felt very qualified, were very slim. Um, and it was hard because there were so many different elements, like people, some people don't give the Miss Sprint Cup program enough credit. Like there are a lot of people that do that understand the hard work and all the different things they did, but visibility wise for, you know, the casual fan or people that don't know, um, it very much looks like it was a trophy girl victory lane program. Um, and I think the Miss Sprint Cup program did a good job of trying to dispel those rumors, but you had to have a college degree. You had to, during the job interview, do all these different types of things. You had to take a, a quiz on NASCAR, which I studied and studied and studied for. Now, like they were more concerned with hiring good people versus people that knew the ends and outs of NASCAR because it's sure. very it's much easier to teach somebody about the sport than it is to teach somebody how to be a good person and be personable and that sort of thing so I give them credit for that but regardless still studied my butt off for that part of it and then you had to meet with like all the different like departments of what Sprint covered in the sport so like I had to sit down and I had to meet with the client hosting teams that were bringing in like CEOs of fortune 500 companies as guests for the weekend and have like very business oriented conversations with them on, you know, what it would be like to be a representative of the company of the sport dealing with, you know, top business people. You had to do a social media portion where, and this was like when social media wasn't even as popular as right. it is now. So it exactly. was, it was, you know, a lot of people didn't know social media strategy and you were given, you know, specific prompts and pictures to come up with uh, posts and content. Um, then there was like a faux radio interview where they basically had somebody that pretended to be a shock jock that asked you all these questions because the Miss Sprint Cup program sent you into markets early to promote the race. And a lot of times because of the nature of what we were doing and the title people assume certain things. So like you would get really, you would have to field really hard questions at some of these radio interviews. So there was a, a mock radio interview. There was a mock TV interview. There was a portion where, because we had a mobile marketing display, uh, the spring experience where it was very much like crowd interaction and hyping people up. Um, you had to kind of simulate that. And then there was um, like a, a memorization portion where they gave you a, a sprint script that you had to memorize very quickly as this best nuts. That you could. Yeah. And then deliver that. So like, and there were like multiple rounds of the, there were like three, I think rounds of this interview. So it literally was the hardest job interview I've ever done because it was so many different things like in the, the big communication picture and, you know, 
marketing umbrella that Sprint was, but I felt very prepared for it because that's kind of like what, like I went to undergrad for broadcasting. I went to grad school for ad PR marketing. Uh, I had had experience in sports. So it felt like, even though I wasn't certain I was going to get it, like very much the perfect mix of, of all my experiences in schooling. Yeah. It seems like you had all the bases covered. I I'm so fascinated when I talk to you and I had, you know, Monica Palumbo, obviously very, very well from the Miss Sprint Cup days and now from the media side of things. But I was really fascinated talking with her a few months ago as well about the whole program and her time with it. She obviously was the OG, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But she used a couple different buzzwords that I thought were interesting. She was essentially talking about you guys being the liaison between the fans, the series entitlement sponsor and the sport itself. And obviously the relationships that you guys cultivated with the drivers now reap the benefits and really pay dividends in your job every single day and Monica's job every weekend as well. Was it tough balancing that line of being kind of the brand rep and the brand ambassador and, 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 you know, cultivating those relationships while also just kind of trying to toe the line between not necessarily being a quote unquote spokeswoman or a sellout to some people. Right. And then toe in that line. It seems like it could be a fine one. Yeah, it, there was definitely a fine line. And there were sometimes because you were very much, yes, you were the fan liaison and a spokesperson for the sport, but you were also a spokesperson for Sprint, first and foremost. They're paying so, the bills, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I remember, like, one of my first Victory Lanes, my grandma was watching, and she was like, I saw you in Victory Lane, but, like, the camera shot, like, your face, I couldn't see your face. It was cut off. And I asked her, I was like, could you see the branding on my suit? And she was like, yep. And I was like, then I did my job. Yeah. That's what matters. So there was definitely an awkwardness of like, there were certain boxes we had to check to make sure we were serving sprint and, and doing, you know, the due diligence of what we were there for while also being a fan liaison. But because the job was so fun, like, like you didn't really overthink it in that sense. What were some of the most uh, memorable victory lanes like for you? Monica said, I think Bristol, one of them, where she just got absolutely doused with some mysterious liquid. Um, I'm sure that you have some memorable ones in your time, too. Yeah, there's a couple. So my very first victory lane ever, ever, ever was uh, for a points paying race was the 2011 Daytona 500. Trevor Bain wins and like I knew at the time what a big deal it was and you could sense, but like. I've, I've gotten to appreciate it even more the longer I've been in the sport because, you know, I didn't, I, I'm different than I would say a large percentage of people that work in the sport. Like I didn't grow up, you know, with a dad that raced or, you know, an aunt that watched races or I didn't didn't know who the Wood brothers were. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't go to my local short track and that sort of thing. And I really paved my own way, like without any context getting into the sport and so like there was a lot of learning to be done and again in the moment i definitely understood that like wow this is history making but the cool thing is like the longer i worked in the sport the more i got to look back and be like wow how cool that i got to experience that um that was you know how did you kick off your your nascar career in daytona 500 victory lane with the wood brothers um pretty cool. Then my first, one of my first like victory lanes by myself, cause they had all three misprint cups for Daytona 500. Cause that was a big one. Um, was Kyle Bush at Bristol, uh, spring. He like had swept the weekend, 
Uh, they had brooms out. They were like throwing M&Ms. Uh, that was a really cool experience. Um, Brickyard 400 for Jeff Gordon's, what, fifth win there? Um, was a big, I think it was his fifth. He's got um, a lot of them. A huge one. A huge, huge one. Um, Dale Jr. winning the Daytona 500. Um, I remember Steve Letart, he was crew chief, like him dragging his kids out of the motor coach. They were like in their pajamas asleep. Um, so it's funny to like look back at that now and let, now I work with Steve and like right. you know his kids and they're and grown. Yeah. Um, yeah. So those are some of the ones that, that stick out. And then like cha- any championship victory lane, like is amazing because you have the big, huge championship stage that we used to ride out. And um, like, there were a couple times, like we would be riding that stage out and we didn't know the champion until like the last minute. Like when Tony Stewart won the championship, um, it was like, oh my gosh, like when we loaded that stage, we did not know who the champion was going to be. Yeah. Tiebreaker. Yeah. Wild stuff. Um, Something that also kind of came to mind, our mutual friend, Heather DeVoe, obviously, I believe she started on the speed stage seeing an Mm -hmm. ad on MySpace. Yeah. And you started Brandy. seeing an ad on Facebook. It's it's like, and that was, you know, before social media was really a thing. Yeah. So it's just wild that, you know, two of the people that are now, you know, bringing us the coverage of the sport that we know and love found it on MySpace and Facebook. The more, you know, yeah. I guess a random, like one of those pop-up ads that you never want to like, like you're like ignore them. Cause you're like, what yeah. are they trying to sell me? And I remember it was like a picture of like the three current Miss Sprint Cups, like the, just like their little outline. And it said like, do you want to be Miss Spark Cup? Whatever it said. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. Let me Here's my spontaneity out. being the middle child. Yeah. Why, why not? Yeah, why not? Um, so the whole the whole time as you were Miss Spring Cup, you know, in the 2000s, 2010s, I know that obviously was a completely different time in the world, right? Society, NASCAR specifically, obviously. That's when I personally kind of first got involved in it a little bit more, started understanding it a little bit more as I grew older comparing that vibe and when you were at the track every single weekend in a different role working to now what the vibe is like with the new era, the new leadership, new car, everything like that. Looking back on those days, you know, some people, they always say, right, you don't know they're the glory days because you're living them and you look back on them and then they really are. What do you think of when, when you look back on your time as Miss Sprint Cup and when Sprint was the entitlement sponsor? I mean, I assume it's all good memories and it's all fun, but looking back on it, even for me, just as a fan, pictures, videos, it seemed like that was kind of the heyday for somebody like me that was growing up in it and you getting yeah. your first exposure as well. Yeah, there, I, there's a little bit of a sense of that. And I think I have a different view because then like, some people would because of the nature of my job like my job not that my job's not fun now but like and it miss Brinko was a hard job but it was a very cool job like you were in victory lane celebrating with the winning team each weekend and like the energy you got from that that like it was just so much fun and so in that sense yes i could i could see it being described as like the glory days but like I love where the sport is at now and the parody. And, you know, when I was in the sprint cup, it, there were, you know, drivers that were winning lots and lots of races Thanks, every multi- Yeah. <laughs> um, and I do think a sport needs that. I think a sport needs dynasties and needs superstars to create fan bases that like really want to dedicate, you know, 
their free time, which could go a lot of different places to a single sport. But I love the parody that the sport has now. Because mm-hmm. I remember being in Victory Lane as Miss Sprint Cup and like, I would like pray that it would be a new winner, like a, a driver that had never won a cup race or a driver that was like breaking a winless streak yeah. just because you had to do victory lane so often that when it was a winner that was winning over and over again. Oh, you, you again. Didn't, you didn't get the same sense of like, wow, it's hard to win in this sport. And they really appreciated it like Absolutely. you did when it was a new phase. So like, I would, I would remember like just sitting there with like, whatever, 15 or 20 laps to go, depending on the track. Cause that we have to get to victory lane early to set up and just like watching on the screens or like on our phones, like the last laps and just being like, please let it be like a new or different winner. So thinking back to those times now makes me appreciate where the sport has gone. And the fact that, you know, we have 11 different winners halfway through the season and still have, you know, a lot of different drivers that could win this year. This is why you speak for a living and you do it on big time stages because that was perfectly said. Can't really add anything more to that. All right. So when your time um, as Miss Sprint Cup and when Sprint wound up leaving the sport, when that all ended, what was next for you? And, and were you nervous for the next step, having been in that job that you had been in and done so well for a handful of years? Yeah. So I was Miss Sprint Cup. I got hired in 2010 and then worked 11, 12, 13, 14 uh, at the end of 14, they kind of knew that Sprint was leaving, but the Miss Sprint Cup program was going to be back for 2015. I was welcomed back if I wanted to, um, but there were there was like rumblings of of people reaching out to me to do other stuff. When I was in my last year of Miss Sprint Cup in 2014, although I didn't know it was my last year at the time, like Doug Rice invited me probably two or three times, three or four times to come work some of their broadcasts. I worked some of their qualifying shows in Charlotte and in Atlanta. And he loves to be the one that says he, he's the one that, that kind of launched the broadcasting career side of things, um, which I will give him that credit for. So I had a little taste of that. I knew I enjoyed that, but I, you know, until MRN approached me was very much like, I will be on board and be Miss Front Cup in 2015 and help kind of land the, 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 the plane of this program um, and then see what happens. But as soon as MRN reached out and I started interviewing with them, it, it very quickly became clear, like, if I wanted to make this a long career in the sport, I needed to take that opportunity as opposed to just doing something I knew I was comfortable with. All right. So when you get the job with MRN, and you start going down that path of a more traditional broadcasting avenue, right? You had done interviews before. These drivers see you more than they see their own family sometimes. So they knew you, you knew them, you guys had good rapport. Were there any nerves to put on the blue shirt and do a race broadcast or was it pretty seamless from your perspective? Oh no, there were tons of nerves. I think a, because I had done tons of driver interviews and that's part of the reason MRN reached out to me is they had seen those, they had heard those and they really liked kind of the voice I brought to those kind of interviews. And they, they were freshening up their lineup, wanting to bring in a female voice that they hadn't had in a while. Um, and it was, that was very much why they approached me as like, we want your voice. We want to be doing more longer format one-on-one interviews for our pre-race shows. So I was like, yes, I felt very comfortable with that there wasn't a lot of clarity to the fact that I would also be doing some of like at that time, they didn't put me directly in, you know, 
competition coverage during the races, but during qualifying shows and stuff. And so I got to Daytona, not really with the full realization that like, all right, you're getting suited up and you're going into the garage and (laughs) you are going to be reporting. So I will be the first one to admit, like my one-on-one interviews were, I think very good. The, the uh, boots on the ground, like you're in the garage interviews started and were very rough for a long time because I, again, there, I don't know that there could have been more communication to me in hiring me that I would be also doing that role, but the best way to learn is to be thrown into the fire. I learned by osmosis because I got to be surrounded by some of the best and I'm still surrounded by some of, if not the best voices in the sport. Um, and you know, to survive, I had to learn quickly and wouldn't looking back have done it any other way. Sink or swim. You're still swimming. Good for you. Uh, uh, so fast forwarding here a little bit, MRN, you're doing some NASCAR stuff. Still are obviously, um, I don't know if you still are, but WCCB local TV in Charlotte too. You're obviously everywhere, anywhere, all at once. When did NBC come into the picture and network television get on your radar? And I assume that was something that you were definitely going to jump at. Yeah. Um, I definitely, it was an interest to me, but I wasn't overly eager in the sense that I was more of the thought process of like, I still have tons to learn in the competition coverage. Uh, so I was fine doing, and that's why I'm still doing MRN because they're, you know, you always have room to grow. Um, I was pretty happy with just doing radio coverage. Um, and then I don't know what year it was, maybe like 2018, uh, I actually did a couple of ARCA races for Fox. They had reached Mm -hmm. out, um, and through the Miss Spring Cup program had, had met some of both on the Fox and NBC, NBC side, some of the you know, people that were in positions that were hiring, you know, the on-air talent and maintaining those relationships. So like, even though I, I, you know, only have had what I would consider, I don't even know what a full-time TV on-air job, I guess you would call it at this point, um, until recently had been developing those relationships for a really long time and, and knew I was in no rush to get to the TV side because if, if, I could stay in the MRN role, I would still be learning and learning each and every week. So there wasn't a sense of urgency in getting to the TV side. Um, also did some flat track coverage, uh, mm-hmm. which was on the TV side. So that kind of helped. And then ultimately at the end of 2021 and like summertime to like fall, uh, had stronger conversations uh, with the folks over at NBC. And then they uh, put together like, um, air checks from like my MRN work. They were familiar with it. They had listened to it. They had seen stuff I had done um, in other roles and felt comfortable with putting me on, on their team. A couple more and I'll let you run. Um, oh, you're good. Sorry. So, I feel like I'm like being very long winded, but no, this is, this is like, this is exactly what a podcast is for Kim. You should yeah, know this by now. I know. Um, so you have done and do live radio taped radio, which is a podcast. Duh. Yep. You do digital, television, live television, linear. I mean, there are so many different things. You host social shows. Um, There's so many different things that you do in terms of content creation, on-camera broadcasting, et cetera. I realize this is a very loaded question. Yeah. But 
how do you go about preparing for each one of those different disciplines and how do they differ? Oh gosh, they're so different. This answer could last forever. I'll try. And I know. Make it. I know. Um, regardless of what discipline is, just staying up to speed with like the news. It's hard. Like what's happening in the sport, you just have to be make sure you're, you know, paying attention to everything, and you still you still miss stuff. Like if because there's so many different ways to consume news now, be it podcast or TV or radio or social media. Um, but I do the best that I can. Um, I will say on the, on the live TV side, there's a lot more, um, prep work done in finding stories, talking with different teams, different drivers, crew chiefs, making sure that when you're filling, you know, your 15 minutes or 15 seconds of airspace that you're telling strong stories, um, which is a, a very different approach than the radio stuff because the radio is live action. You're calling what you see. Yes, you do need to know those same stories, but right. but the opportunity to tell them and the level in which you're telling them is very different than TV. Um, whereas as radio on the radio side, you need to know the stories, but you very much need to be more just in the now. Um, so the prep work is a little bit different. And then the, you know, the podcast stuff, our podcast, if for anybody that's listened to Glass Clay Case, that was just us. So I don't know that there was really much prep work outside of we're going to talk about, <laughs> we might talk about this, we might talk about that, but the train might derail and we might talk about something completely different. Um, and then like some of the social and digital shows preparation is probably somewhere in between uh, what I do for radio and TV in terms of of the type of lifting and the type of prep. It's been funny too. Cause sometimes when we're at races, I'll see you on pit road when you're doing TV and you got a pit spotter there with you. You got somebody holding the monitor. You got a cameraman lights, all this stuff. And then when I see you working for MRN, you're just there by yourself, just yep. scanning, writing notes. Yep. You got nobody with you as somebody that works in radio. Obviously I can empathize with you on that side of things. So I'm sure it was probably nice when you started doing some more TV stuff. You're like, Oh, I don't yeah. have to run back and forth like this all the time. This is cool. Yeah. Yeah. Radio, MRN, like live race radio, you're definitely a, a one person show mm -hmm. uh, as a pit reporter. You are doing, you know, pretty much everything yourself. You have a little bit of help in the sense that like, you know, if the booth is aware of something, they, the producer can radio and say, check this out. Sure. Um, but you, you have a lot more, um, at your fingertips in terms of resources on the TV side. Um, but they're so different. Like it doesn't necessarily make the TV side of things easier because you have all of those extra things. Right. Right. Um, you probably get this question a lot and I had no idea about this maybe because I've known you obviously just as, you know, somebody that's in NASCAR and I see you smiling. You probably know where I'm going. I, I had I no idea that you were on the bachelor. Oh gosh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people don't. I like to keep it that way. Actually, I don't I don't try to hide it, but it's not like something that um, defines me in any way. And it was no. this very small blip on the radar of my life. So it, I, I laugh when people bring it up or when they, you know, are enthralled by it because I don't give it much weight. Um, yeah. but I did it, and I did it so long ago that it was before like reality TV was what it is today where, yeah. um, a, the, uh, 
audience size was different. The uh, exposure you got was very different. Like, again, unless you really did your research, you would have no idea I was on um, a reality show. Uh, and it was because of my sister, my older sister. She and her friends nominated right. me for it. Um, it was not really... For as much as I've like spearheaded my own life and like made decisions uh, for myself, that was not one that I spearheaded. Uh, they applied for <laughs> me. Ended up getting um, a spot on the show if I wanted it. Uh, you'd have to know my big sister to know she's, uh, I don't want to call her a bully, but if I hadn't done it, after she told she you you were doing it, <laughs> after she got me on the show, I would have never lived it down. Um, <laughs> And it was also like the year that she had applied for me was like a year of yes for me. Not that like uh, my whole life probably doesn't seem like a, a life of yes, I'll do this and <laughs> yes, I'll take this on. But I, I said I would say yes to like any opportunity or any kind of wild experience that year. And so yeah. I had to say yes. And here I thought that you're going to be spontaneous and just go by yourself. But no, you had a little push. <laughs> I For that, I had a push because that that show and just all like that whole world of like reality it. tv and stuff is very much if you know me not my no. cup of tea that's and why i was kind of surprised when i like yeah. figured this out in my research i was like yeah. yes i know it was a long long time yeah. ago but like that is not the kim i know i would also say like i very much then am the same person i am now and that like i wasn't looking for love or any of that i was yeah. like year of yes like I could meet some really cool people doing this. Okay. And different experience. What can I learn from this? And yeah. what I learned is that I will never do reality TV ever again. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you know because you tried. So that's good. Yeah, and I exactly. think not I don't I don't watch the show either. My girlfriend does, but I think that yeah. one year was his name Brad. He didn't even find somebody, right? It was like the second I don't uh it was the second time he was on it and I I think I remember who won, but they didn't end up together. I will say yeah. I still have to the, your point of like meeting people, a couple of the producers on the show and then a couple of the girls that were on the show, I am still friends with. So it was Ooh. not, it was not for nothing. Um, it, there was, there was some good that came out of it. You can thank your big sister for that. Then, yes, I guess. I can. Um, also in my research, I hope that this is correct. You painted for a few years when you were younger. Do you still have a passion for art or am I totally off base here? No, you're right. I actually painted for more than a few years. So I took, studio art like to where like once a week i would go to an art studio and there would be an instructor and i would paint um from probably the age of eight to 20 years old um wow. so more than a few years i painted a painting probably five years ago i i stopped for a while and then i was like oh i want to i want to paint again so uh took some classes here, not classes here in Char Charlotte, but like it just like classes in the sense that like I had a place to go where there were other people in a studio. So I was like more focused than just like trying to focus at home, which is very hard uh, these yeah. days with all of the different ways you can spend your time. Um, yeah. So did a painting and then uh, I have a big canvas that I drew stuff on uh during the pandemic that i need to revisit that i haven't started painting yet but it's like will be if i if i go back to it, it'll be the biggest painting i've ever made so wow we'll very cool a good creative outlet i assume mm -hmm. yeah it's a very good stress reliever 
Yeah, I'm sure. All right. Well, we mentioned glass case of emotion. If you don't know, what are you doing? But that's obviously the pod with you, Chuck, and YRB. It came back for a hot sec like a couple of weeks yeah. ago, and I was super hyped. I was like, oh, going to work it back into my weekly rotation. I never unsubscribed, by the way. So when it yeah. popped up back in my feed, I was like, holy shit, it's back. But you yeah. teased us. It was just a one-off, I guess. It was. It was like a reunion. That's not to say there wouldn't be other pop-up episodes. I don't know that there's been a decision to do that, but there also hasn't been a decision not to do that. So we keep everybody guessing. Ryan's Ryan's a busy guy. You got to corral that guy. He is. He's a busy guy. Yeah. Um, all right. I, I told you we would get to Jude. Let's mm-hmm. get to Jude. Yes. The cutest thing I ever did see. Um, how is old Jude doing and how big, how big is Jude now? Jude two weeks ago weighed in at 47 pounds. He's actually, he looks bigger <laughs> than he is. He's fluffy, oh my God. but, uh, the pictures he, you sent me, he was like two pounds. I know he's gotten, he's gotten bigger and 40 and from where he was, he's definitely bigger. Uh, but if you give him a shower or wash him, yeah. he noodle, he's like a skinny little thing, but he is. He is still growing. He's continuing to grow. He's sleeping right now. Um, it's hot. It's the dog days of summer. He's got to catch yeah. the where he can. Literally. But he's, very, yeah. he's very good. Um, and he's my favorite part of coming home after a long race weekend. Yes. Oh, God. The pictures you sent me, like, a, probably a few months ago at this point. Oh, yeah, he's, he's just, just like such a little, a little nugget. Oh, my God. Oh, he's so cute. All right. That was the most important part of the podcast. But yeah. uh, one more thing. You obviously have accomplished – so much in your career in and out of motorsports. And I know you still got a whirlwind to go and a lot to accomplish. Is there anything specifically that's kind of on your bucket list in or out of motorsports mm-hmm. that you want to accomplish or something you want to do? Um, that's a good question. I would say, first of all, I don't dream of labor. My faith, my friend Bailey, when, um, I was having a conversation with her and I was just talking to her about how like, I don't like the idea of like a dream job or anything like that. And she was like, me neither. That's why I tell people I don't dream of labor. Um, I don't dream of labor, but uh, (laughs) I do do enjoy working. Um, I would probably say more so than like something specific, like that I want to cover. I hope I get to cover this. I just hope that like, NASCAR gets to race internationally, like overseas. Like I'm seeing pictures right now from Goodwood, like Goodwood's been on my radar, maybe not even to work, but just to go. So I personally would like, because I love covering NASCAR, the sport to continue to grow to where we do get to travel to like, and not even like internationally, meaning, you know, Canada or Mexico, not that I wouldn't love a, a, to go to a race in Mexico city or Montreal. I would love that. But like the thought of like doing even an exhibition race, like they used to do in Japan or like in England or France. And if that means I have to like cover a different form of racing to, to get to some of those places, you know, I I'll, I'll weigh that if I ever get the opportunity, but I would more than anything like to be covering NASCAR, but on an international scale. Yeah. I know you love travel too, obviously being in your family. So you would yeah. definitely welcome that. I was going to say, hope you have your passport ready. Cause I'm, I have a feeling we may be going up North next year. Yeah, yep. I've heard, I've heard. So my passport is ready. So there you go. Well, you have given me so much time and I really, really appreciate it. We have overshot the runway here, but thank you so much for that. Thank you for giving me all the insight. It was great to yeah 
catch up with you in a different way than just seeing you at the racetrack for a few seconds here and there. Um, you have been awesome to me in my short professional career. And it's funny too, kind of full circle. I remember, I don't know what year it was, but it was still when you were Miss Sprint Cup. I won these like random Twitter giveaways that you guys did. I have like a signed chase poster from all the guys that were in the chase. You asked my question to like Michael Waltrip and Kevin Harvick one time on race hub. I still have the picture somewhere or something, but it has been a, it's been a long road. So to get to know you now in a professional sense and to call you a friend, it's been awesome. You're an inspiration to me and what you do. So I appreciate you giving me some time and hopefully I'll see you this weekend or next week in Pocono, I guess. Thanks. I appreciate it. And we are back. Oh, thank you so much, Kim, for the time. I I told her after we hung up and we were just talking for a little bit, just shooting the you-know-what. She was like, my story's just really weird and there's a lot of twists and turns. I was like, girl, stop apologizing. You are unique and that's what we love you for. And a podcast is a long-form conversation. So she did not go long and she was great. And I told her that to her face and I'll tell her it again. She was fantastic. And I so appreciate her giving me so so much of her time on a busy week as always right smack dab in the middle of the season and as nbc continues to roll on into new hampshire motor speedway be sure to watch her this weekend and every weekend you can watch her on nbc you can hear on mrn watch her on nascar social platform she is everywhere and anywhere kim coon what a gal let's real quickly recap the race at atlanta motor speedway i was gonna maybe recap chicago a little bit but it's just so far in the rearview mirror no need to do that if you're listening to me odds are you've heard everything under the sun as it pertains to that race it was phenomenal it was also very wet i had a good birthday once the rain stopped it was awesome i I hope they go back next year and shane van gisbergen you are an absolute dog my friend anyways atlanta was really fun uh, unfortunately, 75 laps short due to Mother Nature intervening. William Byron gets the win, his series-leading fourth win of 2023. But the racing was real, real good. It wasn't quite Talladega-esque. It wasn't quite Daytona-esque. And it definitely wasn't mile-and-a-half-esque. Even though Atlanta is a mile-and-a-half, this was just different. We know that this is a super speedway hybrid of sorts. I really, really dug what I saw. Uh, The racing was intense. You got to say that part of that was due to the impending rain and forced the premature ending of the race after stage two. But, man, that was good stuff. Dale Jr. said it was the the best racing he's ever seen. I'm paraphrasing. Maybe a little bit of hyperbole there. Uh, But he said it's the hottest ticket on the schedule. So did Steve Letarte. And no, that's not just because they work for NBC because they call it fair and straight like they see it. It was awesome, and uh, I wholeheartedly agree. Wish we got the last 75 laps, too, but I will say, Marcus Smith, SMI, NASCAR, anybody that's listening, even though none of you are, that race is about two hours, 45 minutes, and it was action-packed. No need to have that be a 400-miler. Please, do it. I know I know you're going to get pushed back, especially from the hardcore traditional fans. Make it a 300-miler. Just do it. You'll, you'll have the race be super action-packed, and just think, If the rain wasn't coming, I don't think that we would have as crazy of moves as we saw throughout the first 100 and whatever laps of that race. I just don't. So I loved what we saw at Atlanta. I don't think we need more super speedways. I certainly don't think we need that race to be any longer. And I will take what I got. And what I got was good. Hopefully we'll get some good this weekend as well out in the granite state of New Hampshire Motor Speedway. Gotta say. I feel for the people at NBC, PRN, MRN, 
us at Sirius XM NASCAR Radio because we have been wet the past month. Uh, Nashville had to move the race up due to a threat of rain. Chicago, we know how that went. Last week, race ends 75 laps early. Something about Mother Nature and NASCAR just go together so terribly. And I don't know. If you're in a drought, just call NASCAR to town and we'll fix you up. I don't know if New Hampshire's in a drought. I knew Chicago was. But hopefully, hopefully, as I talked about with Kim, we will have a dry and fun weekend of racing out at New Hampshire Motor Speedway. They are testing a new unique splitter package for implementation next year in 2024 at New Hampshire after the race this weekend. There's going to be a handful of drivers there for that. We'll see how it goes. NASCAR and some drivers have been pretty bullish on the racing that that may potentially uh, promote for next year in terms of it being on short tracks and giving more drag to the lead car and helping the trailing car, which has always been uh, an ongoing battle and effort in terms of lessening the aerodynamic dependency and downforce as it pertains to racing on short tracks and putting it back in the driver's hands, so to speak. But that will be after the race this weekend at New Hampshire. Excited to see how everybody shakes out up there. We know it's a Joe Gibbs racing powerhouse as of late, but I got to say, you got to keep your eye on Hendrick. William Byron, Kyle Larson, and of course, Chase Elliott, who needs to win a race to get into the playoffs at this point. I would say that's probably a certainty in terms of him pointing his way in. I don't see that happening. And Alex Bowman, he's still on the bubble as well after missing a handful of races due to his broken back. So eyes on the 9 and the 48 of Hendrick, while the 24 and the 5 continue to rack up the dubs. And that'll wrap things up here today on episode 192 of Victory Lane 2.0. Hope you like what you heard here today. And if you did, please do me a favor. I know it sounds trivial, but it really does help out. Leave a rating and a review. You can do so on Apple, Google, SoundCloud, the Green App, wherever you get your podcast. We should be available there for your consumption. And if we are not, please do me a favor. Drop me a line. I'll try to rectify that issue for you. Catch me on Twitter at Davy Center. On Instagram, I have changed my Instagram username to Davy Siegel because I am now on Threads. Yes, Threads at Davy Siegel there. Uh, you can catch me on TikTok at Davy Siegel as well. Any social media platform, search for me. You'll find me. I got no doubt about it. You're smart enough to do that. We'll be back next week with another guest from the world of NASCAR. Not going to spoil who it is yet because, spoiler alert, I don't know who it is yet. Uh, but we'll recap New Hampshire and preview the Tricky Triangle, Pocono Raceway. I'll be there, and I can't wait for it. And I can't wait to talk to you guys right here in the place everybody wants to be, Victory Lane. Be good, party people. <laughs>